Hi, everyone, and welcome to Strategy Insights, the podcast that was previously called Monday Morning 8 a.m. This is a podcast that goes out every Monday morning from Firms Consulting, where we distill out all of the big insights from the noise, whether it's business news, geopolitics, the economy, agriculture, and so on. If you would like the re-edited version of previous episodes, you can go to Amazon.com and type in Strategy Insights, and this podcast series appears as a book format, which we update periodically. So you have many ways to keep in touch and see what's happening. As we go through this, remember that it's important you think about how you are going to use these insights to move markets and move the world. So let's get into the first big theme we're seeing, right? There's a lot of action taking place in the world of streaming and so on, whether it's streaming of audio files, video files, and so on. And the first theme that I want to introduce is something entitled Disney Plus is not competing with Netflix. And that's an interesting theme. As many of you will know from previous episodes of Strategy Insights, I have been working with a very senior executive in the streaming industry who has their sites and her company's sites set an understanding what is happening with Disney Plus. And quite often she will present her team's thinking to me and um, we have discussions about whether they're thinking about the right things and so on. So a previous episode I did where I spoke about the fact that Disney Plus is not a streaming service, but it's actually the first place where a child finds their only friend or best friend obviously got them thinking a lot about how they should compete with Disney. And they've gone ahead and they've reworked their plans and they came back and talked to me about how they're going to compete with uh, Netflix and Disney and so on. The first mistake they made is to assume Disney Plus is going to compete with Netflix, wants to compete with Netflix, and is going to compete on the same terms as Netflix. Now, what do I mean by that? What that means is that too often when we decide what business we're in, we think everyone wants to be in that business. So everyone has to pick a word to describe the business that HBO Max is in, Disney Plus is in, and Netflix is in. And because these companies are slightly different, you've got to pick a word that captures a little bit of what they're all doing. And the word is streaming. Now, here's the thing. If you look at the assets Disney has, it has a formidable array of assets, from cruises to theme parks to merchandise to the characters they own to movies to TV shows and so on. They are not in the same business as Netflix. Disney Plus shouldn't, and I don't know, but I'm, they are pretty smart guys at Disney. I don't have insider access to Disney, but they're pretty smart guys there. I'm pretty sure they do not see themselves competing with Netflix, and I'll explain why. But I'll also go further to say that Netflix hopes Disney Plus sees them as competition. And let me explain the thinking here. When Disney Plus launched, everyone said, well, they're launching the streaming was, and they're going to be the world's best streamer, and they're going to have shows and movies and so on. Okay, all of that makes sense. But Disney Plus is the first iteration of what Disney wants to do to get closer to customers. That first iteration is a streaming portal, for lack of a better word. Remember, portals are popular in the 1990s. That's what a streaming platform is. It's a portal. It's the first iteration. The question is, what is the final iteration going to look like? Because this is where they are starting. Remember when Netflix just started off many, many years ago and they allowed you to watch one or two movies online because of bandwidth issues and so on? So if Disney Plus is just starting 
with streaming, where does Disney Plus want to go? And to answer that question, you have to look at the assets Disney has. And those assets are an enormous ecosystem of phenomenal firepower when it comes to branding. The final iteration of Disney Plus would make more sense if Disney could integrate all of those assets. For example, why does Disney Plus just have to be a streaming portal? If you watched a children's movie and you liked it, why could you not off that same portal be enticed to buy the merchandise and book a cruise when that character is going to be appearing on the cruise? Why can't it be more like a much more friendlier version of Amazon? Not that Amazon is unfriendly, but it's, you know, it's a pure e-commerce site. What if Disney Plus could be an experience for the entire family? And this is the thing that Disney has going for it. One is, previously, every time you interacted with Disney, it was almost like a, a singular transaction. Let's call it a singular transaction. You would rent a movie and so on. You would watch a show and then the interaction would be over. But with Disney Plus, you can have the entire immersive experience of Disney. The entire immersive experience of Disney is not just shows and TV, it's everything they have. Two, Disney has the ability to do this because one of their biggest comp competitors, which is DC, cannot do this. Disney has spent a lot of time and money buying back licenses from Netflix and so on, so that eventually, if maybe it's, maybe they're already at that position, but eventually all Disney shows can be shown on Disney Plus. Why is this important? Because Disney has a connected multiverse. That means a story in one show taps into a story in another show now. If Disney has licensed different shows to different platforms, how are you going to follow the storyline? You're going to watch one show on Disney, then you have to subscribe to Netflix. And this is a problem Warner Brothers has. You know, if you go to Wikipedia today and you search for list of television series based on DC Comics publications, you can see ongoing shows. They have The Flash on CW channel, Supergirl season one on CBS, season two to six on CW. Legends of Tomorrow and Black Lightning on CW, Titans on HBO Max, Doom Patrol on HBO Max, Pennyworth on Epics, Batwoman on CW, Stargirl on DC Universe Season 1 and something and CW, and Superman and Lois on CW. So if I wanted this whole immersive experience with DC, I couldn't get it. I'd have to subscribe to multiple areas. And the insight here is to truly understand not just what business you're in and where your competitors are, but where your competitors are going to go with their assets. And where they are now is not where they want to go. And I've pushed back on this client and said, you've got to rethink this. If you want to compete with Disney+, Plus, you've got to imagine where Disney+, Plus wants to go, not where they are starting. You end the race with where you want to go. For Slides members, we're going to have a big update coming up where we're going to put up a very detailed analysis on how you respond to competitive threats. For insiders, there is an update coming to insiders as well, a very big update. The next big theme I want to talk about is Apple's ecosystem competitive advantage. But I'm not going to talk too much about Apple because the deep insight is not so much about Apple, but it's about what is an ecosystem. Let me put it this way. I have another client who um, works in the tech space and he always talks to me about how they want to beat Apple. And then I pointed out to him that, yeah, you want to beat Apple, but you know, Apple's an ecosystem. Right? Apple is entrenched because it's convinced millions, probably, of developers to develop apps on their smartphone that make those phones indispensable. An Apple iPhone without those apps is 
pretty much a boring experience. A beautiful but boring experience, right? So when you want to compete against Apple, you are competing against an entire ecosystem. You are not trying to beat, you know, if you want to take on Apple, you've got to not just look at what Apple is doing, but you've got to look at the entire ecosystem that reinforces Apple. Another example of that, I was speaking to Ram Charan recently, and we were talking about how Apple has uh, got the FDA to approve the algorithms behind their health initiative. Now, that's a big move because what that means is that when other companies want to build software and apps for healthcare services, rather than doing all of the work of writing out algorithms, which may not be approved and may have to be removed, they can simply license Apple's algorithms or use it for free. I don't know how Apple's going to make money from it, but what's important about this is that Apple sets the standard. If everyone is using Apple's algorithms, they're most likely going to be integrated into Apple. And they're going to work in a way that Apple knows how they'll work because Apple has wrote the underlying substructure for healthcare when it's going to be digitized. That is a big move. And by doing so, Apple has created a ecosystem. Now, why is this important? Well, when I talk to this client, he always says he's going to beat Apple, he's going to beat Apple, he's going to beat Apple. And he's an accomplished guy, and I'm sure with the right kind of moves, he can help his company displace Apple. Nobody is perfect. But when I point out to him that it's not just Apple, it's the ecosystem they've built, and he says, well, I'm going to beat the ecosystem as well. Now, this is the mistake he's going to be making. In strategy, when you are taking on a competitor, yes, you want to beat them. But you beat them not by doing what they do better, but by serving customers better in a way your competitor cannot serve them. Okay, that's, you can maybe use the word you want to beat them, it's okay there. But you don't want to beat the ecosystem because the ecosystem is not the enemy. That's like saying you want to beat your customers. You want the ecosystem to be pulled away from Apple slowly and enticed to be built around you. But you don't want to beat your ecosystem. You don't want to speak ill of the ecosystem because if you stand up in a platform saying, hey, you know what? All those app developers who build apps for Apple are terrible and destroying the world. What do you think is going to happen? Do you think they want to build apps for you? So when you are competing against any company, you have to realize that with the way the world is set up now digitally, it's very easy to build an ecosystem of suppliers, providers, customers, and so on around you. Successful companies do that. So that when the successful company maybe is not doing so well, the momentum of the ecosystem sometimes pulls them along and gives them new ideas. The fact that Apple could eventually have its algorithms for healthcare across thousands of apps and healthcare providers means that it can see what they're doing. And I'm, I'm not saying Apple is doing anything illegal. They could, let's put it this way, with consent and permission and dotting all of the T's and crossing all of the I's and getting all of the necessary permission and doing nothing unethical, they can see what these companies are doing and get ideas on how to better serve them. But when you want to compete against a company, You've got to realize that you have to strip away their ecosystem without alienating the ecosystem. That is a big insight. And what I see happening is that sometimes there's such a hatred for a competitor that executives make bold moves and bad decisions to alienate everyone. The next big theme, and it's a huge theme, is obviously the surging Chinese GDP, surging US GDP. But the broader theme is that post-COVID-19, we're going to see a surge in growth that's going to mask bad, weak, or improper strategy. So when I was a strategy partner, 
advising some of the world's largest energy resources companies. One of the most common things we would see is that during a boom time, during a boom time, companies would make a lot of money. Even bad companies would make a lot of money. Even companies that were mismanaging their assets and were wholly inefficient, totally unproductive, they'd make money. So they'd be making a lot of money and they'd be excited about that. And it would pull management's attention to how do we exploit new resources? How do we build new sites? How do we build new production facilities? Focus would shift away from whether we are as efficient as we should be, whether we're in the right products, whether we're deploying capital effectively, because there's just so much capital to be deployed. And then what happens is when the inevitable counter cycle comes along and prices drop, the bad decisions kind of rise out from the receding tide. And you can very clearly see who has not performed as well. That's going to happen again. When companies are undertaking any plans, so you've got to ask three things. One is, is the growth efficient? Two, is the growth effective? And three, is the growth in the right markets? Now, I'm going to change markets here to say, is the growth in serving customers in a way that they will want to be served for a long time? If you're a management consultant, you can handle this in one of two ways. You can go to companies now and just focus on helping them grow. Or you could tell them, you know, historically, this has been the normal practice. And what we can do is we can help you grow, but let's focus on efficient and effective growth as well. So that the money that you would have probably left on the table due to a lack of awareness or misfocus or or lack of focus, I think that's the correct word, we can help you keep that money and not lose it. But not enough companies are going to do that. Because the reality is that when there's a surge in markets, human nature is to always assume that I can make some risks now, take some very bad risks because I will eventually fix it before the music stops playing. But if the boom time lasts longer and longer and longer and longer, you take bigger and bigger risks because eventually you listen to what people are saying. I mean, how many people today are talking about the great danger of inflation. Not many people are talking about it. If you go to the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, New York Times, it's not a front page topic. But it's, it's a big problem that's going to rear its head. When there's euphoria, and there is euphoria now because the gates are about to be opened, people always assume it's going to last. People assume this because in talking to many clients around the world, it's very hard to know what causes inflation. That's the fact. It's very hard to know what causes a recession. That's a fact. But we know it happens. We know certain things in a certain sequence will cause certain events, but what we don't know is when it will happen. So you've got these very smart people, CEOs, CFOs, senior managers, executives, and so on, who know bad things can happen, but what they don't know is when it can happen. And this is the the big issue. So when you talk to people about inflation, they'll tell you, yes, they're worried about it. But what you're going to see them do is, They're going to take action as if they're acting as if there's no inflation coming soon. They'll talk about inflation. They'll have strategy meetings about it. They'll plan for it. But then when you ask them to act on it, their strategy will assume that they're going to listen to smart people and the smart people are going to tell them when inflation will come. They'll do what they want to do. And then when the time comes, they believe they can predict regroup and change things. You know, I was talking to Collar, Timothy Collar from McKinsey, 
And um, we have a slightly different viewpoint on how much cash a company needs to keep on its balance sheet. We do agree on one thing, that a company should not keep more cash than it can deploy effectively. But my view is that a company needs to keep slightly more cash to buffer itself for unpredictable changes. And I think, you know, Tim would agree on that, but maybe just the amounts we disagree on. But that's the thing companies don't think about, especially in a boom period. They know bad times are coming, but they always think they have enough time to adjust. And they're caught into a peer pressure process because if all of your companies, all of your competitors are running lean operations and the market is rewarding them for that, it takes a very, very strong leadership team to say, we're going to buck that trend. We are going to keep cash in our balance sheet. We're going to do what other people are not doing. And it's okay if our share price is punished in the short term. That is the sequence of how these things are going to take place and how they should take place. You need to carefully think through how growth is going to create a bias in your thinking that forces you to abandon many of the contingency measures you know to be true, you know to be right, and that you will abandon it simply to please, whether it's investors, whether it's shareholders, whether it's to please someone whose affirmation you seek. You need to be a pretty confident leader to be able to do that. This comes down to confidence, not about strategy. You have to be able to stand up in a room where everyone is saying, inflation is not going to come soon. Everyone is saying it. You have to stand up in a room where everyone is saying, we learned our lessons from COVID-19. We've not learned our lessons from COVID-19. It's human nature that we will forget everything and repeat all of the mistakes. It's always been that way. It will always be that way. So think about how you're going to be that confident person to stand up in a room to say the counterintuitive thing that is true, but be able to push for it even though no one agrees with you. The next big topic is LG exits the smartphone business. It's just been announced. And of course, there's a lot of hand-wringing in South Korea and so on, wherever LG has these production facilities. Because it's not a small business, it's a multi-billion dollar business. So even though it's losing money and has not made money for a long time, by being squeezed out by Samsung and Apple at the top end and by Chinese manufacturers at the low end, it's still a multi-billion dollar business with a multi-billion dollar supply chain. Careers are made and probably ended in this business. People have maybe worked here for most of their lives. Families have built their futures on a salary that would come from this business to send their children to university. Political leaders have staked their careers on ensuring that LG keeps the plants open because massive unemployment makes them look like poor political leaders. There are a lot of entrenched interests right now doing everything that they can to tell LG, you know what, yeah, you're losing money. It's not good for you, but it's good for me. So why don't you keep it open? In a sense, they're asking LG's profitable business lines to subsidize its unprofitable business lines. We can even take that thinking further. We can say that the LG factory in, let's say there's an LG factory in, where is it? Let's say there's an LG factory in Berlin. I don't know if there's an LG factory, but let's assume there's an LG factory making some profitable product in Berlin. They're asking that profitable product in Berlin to subsidize the unprofitable factory, maybe in Korea, that's making unprofitable phones. They're asking workers in Berlin to give up a bigger share of their profit sharing or bonus structure, whatever incentive program exists, so that they can transfer that money 
to subsidize employees that are producing something the world actually doesn't want. You know, in a manner of speaking, the world now is asking LG to take money from successful employees and give it to employees who cannot make something the world wants to buy. Now, let me ask you a question. If your husband or wife is a terrible cook and wants to open a restaurant, would you encourage your family to give them the money if you know full well they're never going to make food that people are going to want to eat? It's a different case if you think they can improve, but let's assume they can't improve because they're in the middle. Let's assume they're in a street whereby there's these low-cost Chinese restaurants competing with great food at a great price. And on the upper side of them, there's a five-star, there's a Michelin-star restaurant serving some fancy food at a top-end price point. And then next to them, there's a restaurant at their price point serving better food. So, so would you do that? You wouldn't do that because that's just a bad business decision. But at the same time, that's basically what the world is asking LG to do now. But we should be celebrating what LG is doing because they're making the call to withdraw from a place where they cannot compete. They're liberating their suppliers. I mean, they're basically throwing a party for the suppliers and saying, you know what? I don't want you to spend the rest of the year and the next two years planning and building things for a phone that's not going to sell. I'm going to free you to now start to date other potential customers. So maybe you can find a good fit and you can start building products and components for them so that as they grow, you grow. I'm liberating you to find a better way. Same thing with these employees. If LG stays in the smartphone business, let's assume that smartphone business consumes $2 billion of capital a year. I don't know what the right number is, but it's a big number. That's $2 billion a year that LG is not going to be deploying to a business where it could get maybe a 10, 20, 30% cash margin. Now, would you take $2 billion and put it in a bank account where it earns no interest, but maybe the bank will charge you for the privilege of keeping the money here? No, you wouldn't do that. So LG is doing everything right. My only, I wouldn't say criticism, because they've done a very brave thing and they deserve all the credit for that. I would ask them to be bold and exit even other categories and products where they know they cannot win. That's the decision they have to make. It's the right decision they have to make. It's the only decision they can make if they want to be a world leader. I want to end up today about talking through some lessons from a client who is leading a large-scale change program at a very reputable investment bank. And part of the work he's doing is to get the bank to relook at the clients they want to serve and the sectors they want to serve. It's an important piece of work because this determines where they would allocate capital, where they deploy partners, where they'd open offices and so on. And we have many discussions about this, right? So the clients of Indian background, I'll call him Rajesh. It's not his name, but I'll call him Rajesh. And came to the United States, H-1B visa, did his MBA, worked at a tech company, worked as an analyst, and then worked his way up at the investment bank. Two children, his mom lives with them, and he takes care of the broader family in India as well. So you know, definitely trying to do well in the world, a good husband as well. But the point is that he has never been as successful as he thinks he should be for a number of reasons. One is that given his age, is behind the curve. Most people who serve in this internal strategy role for investment banks and so on, they tend to be a lot younger. It's a, it's a staging ground for your career. In his case, he was sent here from another role 
to allow him to find his feet at the bank. This is not a promotion. He's not going up, up, up through strategy into an operating role. No, he went up, up, up to an operating role, didn't so well, and he came back to strategy. He's doing a good job in strategy, so people are saying, well, you know, maybe everything is going well with this guy, but he knows he can do better. And the challenge he faces is, how does he live up to the enormous sacrifices his family made to send him to America? I know a little bit about his background. They're not wealthy. They had to put up a lot of money to send him here. Some of the children at home had to make sacrifices so one child could make it through. So, uh, you know, his whole family suffered. A lot of effort went in. And I know personally he feels that he should do better. He, can't, he doesn't just compare himself to people born in America. He compares himself to the legacy of the sacrifices his family had to make. He couldn't go home when his father had cancer. He couldn't. It was just not possible for him. And he has a sense of failure because he's tried different things to reboot his career, right? I mean, he's read all the books on strategy. He's read all the books on leadership. He's tried different things. He's tried all these techniques from Amazon and Facebook in terms of how to manage single-threaded teams, how to get focus, how to do the right kinds of analysis and so on. And he's at the point whereby he's developed a new strategy for the bank. A strategy that, by the way, has been endorsed by the CEO and the executive committee. And he's been given a very big opportunity to drive this initiative. It's not been handed off to another executive. He's been told, you should drive this. And he convened a strategy get-together with the leaders of different parts of the business. These are the high performers, the rainmakers, as they call them. And he presented the strategy, which is very logical, very well thought out, and they rejected him. They basically said all the right things, like, yes, you did a good job and so on, but nothing is happening. Nobody wants to follow him. And he obviously feels bad about that. There's a sense of despair. Now, when I started working with him, this was a few months after he had tried to present the strategy to the sort of operating leaders, and he had failed. So he definitely feels as if he's stuck. He's, everyone's saying he's doing everything right, but he's not getting the rewards. He's not being promoted. People don't want to follow him. People don't want to listen to him. And what I had to do is firstly understand him. You know, I always tell clients that every client is different. I've got to understand why he feels like a failure. I've got to understand the legacy of his life. I mean, he's, he's different because of his background. He's different because of the unique challenges that exist and the expectations that exist in American Indian families. And I've got a lot of clients who are Chinese who came to America first in their family, studied single child, parents living in China, much older. They're under enormous pressure to perform because of expectations. We've got to unpack those things. So the starting point is trying to get him to understand that he, he has not failed. He just, the first attempt didn't work. Because a lot of us, we are led to believe that if we try something and it doesn't work, we failed. No, your first iteration has failed. The idea is still sound. If this is a must for the bank, then you have to figure out how to do it. If this is what the bank must do to succeed in the long term and fend off big entrenched competitors, then you have to figure out a way. You have to figure out a way. You know, in American football terms, a quarterback doesn't walk off the field and say he failed if he gets sacked in the first play. No, that's normal. He gets up, he 
calls for a new play. He keeps calling for a new play until he finds a way through the team's defense. Unfortunately, in business, we tend to think we fail at something we failed. No, if, if what you're trying to do makes sense, then you've got to be like a quarterback. You're going to get sacked many, many times. That is normal. That's why you wear pads as well. It's not like they say, well, you're the world's greatest quarterback. You're Tom Brady. So don't wear any pads, Tom Brady. Go out there in satin pajamas and play football. No. Even the world's greatest quarterback is going to get sacked a million times. That doesn't make them a failure. So that's the first thing. Understanding what is failure. He didn't fail. He just tried one route. You've got to try other routes, other routes, other routes. Now, let's talk about the plan that I developed for him. The first one is always about getting him to understand who he is, why he's doing it, what is his purpose in life. And that's absolutely a function of his culture, heritage, and family expectations. The way he thinks about the world, what he wants for his family, what he wants for the world is a function of his experiences. Coming to America, taking care of his family, being a minority, it's who he is. So we have many discussions about trying to understand what he wants in life. Why is he doing this? Is he just doing it for the money? Is he just doing it because he went to Wharton Business School and he needs to show people that he didn't squander his Wharton MBA? Because if those are the reasons he's doing it, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that, but I need to know the reasons, right? The next thing is, yes, great, we can do all of this wonderful feel-good stuff which makes him feel like he's a you know, gladiator and he's going to go into combat wearing his gladiator suit, but we've got to give him a plan where he can deliver. Now, this is the big thing we did here. Previously, when he was talking to the operating leaders, he was talking to the highest performers. There's a difference between someone who performs well and someone who's influential within the organization. That's a very big difference. Oftentimes, when you see someone is a high performer, you think they are influential. That's not at all the case. For the very simple reason that high performers are outward facing. They face clients. They're often traveling to clients. They're on the road. But the question is, do they have influence within the organization? Will the organization listen to them? Does this high performer encapsulate the culture, the soul, the spirit, the DNA of the organization? Because if they don't, why will the organization listen to them? Many companies hire high performers to help them enter a market, to win in a certain geography, to get into a new client. But they will never, ever, ever allow that person to dictate the culture of the organization. Because they know that person's role is purely outward-facing sales role. But what happens is we, con we define high performers purely by revenue they bring in. But in many companies, the people that are responsible for bringing in revenue are not guardians of the soul of the company. So the first thing I got him to do is to, is to rethink who he's going to call into a meeting. Don't call in the highest performers. You've got to identify the influencers. Who are the most influential people there? You have got to work with them. Second, you can't tell people what to do even if they're influential. You've got to show them how you're going to do it. At the end of the day, it's not about the analysis. It's about trusting you. Think about this very carefully, right? If you go, if you went to the head of the Japanese office and said, I want you to do this. The head of the Japanese office is basically trusting his or her career in the hands of Rajesh. He's trusting the careers of all of their analysts, associates, and so on at the bank 
in the hands of Rajesh. So when he is asking these influencers to do things, he's not asking them to do something that's going to bring about money and profits and so on. No, he's asking them to put their careers in his hands. That's what he's asking. He's saying, look, if you follow me, I believe this can bolster your career and you will not be laughed at for following some ridiculous strategy. If he comes down to the level of understanding that every time he interacts with someone and gets them to want to do something, you're asking them to trust you, but not just trust you, you're asking them to put their career, take it out of their pocket or of their heart for most people, put it in a box, give it to Rajesh or put it in a safe deposit box and we hope he protects it and preserves it. If you understand that when you are working with people and you have a way of convincing them to do that, they will work with you. When, many years ago, when I was brought in to head up one of the largest boutique firms in the world, the partners wouldn't listen to me. That's normal. Why would they listen to such a young person coming in from outside the organization with all these radical ideas? And the way I did it is I had, I believe it was 8 to 12 meetings with the, what I identified as the most influential person in that entire organization. Now, the interesting thing was he was not the highest performer. He was not even close to being the highest performer. He wasn't the rainmaker. He didn't bring in the most amount of money. He went home at 4 o'clock most days, probably had a nap and then ate dinner and had a nap again and then fell asleep. But he was very influential. People listened to him. So I targeted him. And I spent a lot of time, not explained to him what I wanted to do, but why I wanted to do it. And I remember we were driving in a car. We were going to a meeting with one of the largest infrastructure companies in the world. And we were talking about what were each other's favorite movies. And he told me, and we were talking then, who's, you know, who are your favorite actors? And I gave him some modern guy like probably Tom Cruise or Dwayne The Rock Johnson. And then he told me my favorite actor is Gregory Peck, which I know everyone knows Gregory Peck, right? He's famous. And I think he, the movie he mentioned was To Kill a Mockingbird. And we were talking about this. So again, this is not about the business and so on. And then we went for, um, we arrived early for the infrastructure meeting, so we went for lunch. And I remember we were talking about this and I made a comment that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if uh, everything worked out well and you had enough time to watch these movies and do these things you like. And at that time, there was a shift in the conversation because I can see it in his face. You know, he stopped eating, he put his fork down and he said, you know, do you really mean that? And I said, yes, you know, I know that you have made an enormous sacrifice already just by engaging me. This is interesting. Listen to this. I said, you have made an enormous sacrifice already just by engaging me. The fact that all of the other executives have seen you have lunch with me because they all have lunch in the same place in this little restaurant outside the head office. They see you with me all the time. Every Friday we have lunch. And sometimes we meet during the week. They know you're working with me. They know that my ideas are different. Just by being my... You're like the person in the cafeteria in school who sits down with a radical new kid who has unpopular but useful ideas. Whether or not you join me on this quest, you've already given so much. You've already put your career on the line. Just taking my meetings and sitting with me and being seen with me means that you've already done enough. So what I want is for you to benefit from this. I want you to be successful. I want you to have a good career. In fact, this is not about whether or not we can build the company and break into the energy business in Central Asia. No, this is about us, whether we can get 
the employees to have the best careers they have. My job is to give you a better career. And working with more clients at higher margins is the route to do that. But what I want us to have more of these lunches, maybe every week, and we enjoy what we do, and we do it together because we want to do it together. That is when the mood changed. Because when he went for that meeting with the infrastructure company, immediately he came back, he spoke to the head of energy and said, okay, you got to you know, spend time with Michael. He's doing some very interesting things. I want you to meet him. I want you to go to some clients with him because I think the ideas he has will make an impact. This is the important thing you got to remember about life. It's not about the strategy. It's not about what's good for the company. It's about whether you understand that every time you interact with someone, every time you want to take them on a journey, they're giving you their career in a nice blue box and they're asking you to take care of it. And your job as a leader is to acknowledge that from the beginning, to understand that, that they've spent years getting to where they've been and they want to know that you're not gonna squander it. If you do that, you will always be able to get people to follow you into battle. They will give their life to make you successful because they know that your success is to see them successful. Of course, meeting him every Friday for pasta, peas and pork made me look a bit fat, but it was totally worth it. That's what you have to do. That's what you have to think about as a leader. Now, if you want to understand and have the same impact as Rajesh to avoid the mistakes he made, to avoid the feeling of failure, and he's not a failure, but to avoid that feeling of being trapped, not seeing a way out, not understanding how to motivate and lead people, then I would say that it's my moral duty to remind you that if you become an insider, these are the kind of skills we impart to people. You can avoid the traps that Rajesh set for himself because the best thing you can do is not learn from mistakes, but to learn from other people's mistakes and learn from the guides and tools that we provided to them. And as always, if you write into support at Firms Consulting and tell us some of the challenges you are facing, it helps us in terms of preparing programs. As always, I hope you enjoyed that and I'll see you next week, Monday morning, 8 a.m. for another episode of Strategy Insights. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.